Amen. This morning we're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25. If you want to grab your Bibles and read along. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that, the, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. love you so much. God, I am grateful for uh, your scriptures. I'm grateful for uh, your law, and I'm grateful for your promise. God, I pray that as we open up your word and dive into it this, uh, together this morning as your people, God, I pray that you would, um, I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive your truth, God, and open our minds to understand what you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would speak powerfully through me, that your words would be heard, not mine. God, I pray that uh, it would be to our joy and your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please have a seat? We've been working our way through this wonderful book of Galatians. We've been working our way through, and I just want to remind you with a quick recap what's been happening and what Paul, the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, what he is addressing as an issue and an error in the church or churches of Galatia, this region. He writes this letter uh, because the, the people of Galatia had been saved by faith. Paul came preaching. He planted a church uh, and, and indeed many churches in that region on the basis that Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing the punishment for your guilt that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and that if you put your faith, your trust in him, that you will be forgiven. That all the sins you've committed were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. That all the sins you are committing have been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that all the sins you will commit have been 
paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. He preached that message and the people of Galatia believed and churches were formed and people are praising God. It's a wonderful, glorious thing. And then Paul, as he does, he moves on to another city to plant more churches and he continues on his journeys. And then Paul gets this disturbing word that other teachers have come into the churches of Galatia and they are bringing a different gospel, which Paul says in the early chapters is no gospel at all. Any distortion on the gospel, any change on the gospel, any modification of the gospel makes it all void, right? But these teachers are coming in and they're saying, it's good that you've believed. You're saved, great. Now, do you want to keep your salvation? Do you want to really be saved do you want the higher level of Christianity? Yes? Great, we've got some things for you to do. And they started bringing in aspects of the Old Testament law that, that, uh, that you would need to be circumcised, that you would need to observe the Sabbath, that you have certain dietary laws, all of these things they started bringing in to Christianity and saying, these are the things that you have to do these are the works you have to work out to keep your salvation or to really be saved and and it's a dangerous dangerous trap to fall in and and Paul frankly is pretty fired up about this we saw it in chapter 1 we saw it at the beginning of chapter 3 we're going to be continuing in chapter 3 today but but Paul has some harsh words for these teachers uh, because it it is leading his people astray. It's, it's adding burdens, which God has not added. They're, they're entirely man-made burdens to add this keeping of the law to your salvation. And so my, my message this morning is really going to be in, in two parts. I think the, the, the way the chapters are split here and, and the way the headings are split are somewhat helpful. Remember that the chapters and headings, that's all added after the fact. That's not a part of the uh, holy inspired scripture, but we put chapter and verse marks in there years later to make it easier. Otherwise, I would just say, open your Bibles to about there, uh, and we'll try to get on the same page, right? But the chapter and verses help us out a little bit, but that's not a part of the, the, the holy uh, inspired scripture. And so as I'm kind of going through verse 25, and then next week we're going at the end of chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4, just know that that's kind of why we're doing that. We're trying to break this up into thoughts. But part one of, of my message addresses the big debate. It was a big debate there in Galatia. It's a big debate still today. In fact, it's astonishing that there is any debate at all, but, but there is. Um, the, the big debate, and, and that debate is promise versus law. And then part two, which I'll get to in a moment, we'll, we'll take a look at why the law at all, right? But, but part one here, let's discuss this big debate of promise versus law. Now, I'd like to clarify that this is not a matter of Old Testament versus New Testament, right? I think that, that that's common. That was my understanding when I was younger, that, that New Testament, we have Jesus and grace and mercy, and that's all good stuff. And then Old Testament, there's a lot of hellfire and brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah's in there somewhere, uh, that is law, and it's harsh, and somehow God changed, uh, you know, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years of silence, he was putting on a new personality or something, right? Not the way it works. Not the way it works. Uh, 
and in fact, Paul, in his argument, he uses two Old Testament figures to show this debate of, of promise versus law. So he doesn't juxtapose the Old Testament versus the New Testament. That's, that's just a, a false understanding altogether. But he says there is promise and there is law. They're both in the Old Testament, and they're characterized by two figures here. Number one is Abraham. Abraham is seen as, as the figure of promise because God comes to Abraham and he gives him a promise. He gives him a promise uh, that ultimately there's a number of promises. One is that his descendants will be a great nation. And he, he says this promise to Abraham multiple times and, and they're all basically saying the same thing. You're going to have many descendants. They will become a great nation. And that nation of people will reside in some very nice land which I'm going to bring you to, the promised land. I'm, I'm going to take your people there, your descendants. And then finally, there's, there's this promise of blessing, and he says, your offspring or your seed will be a blessing to the entire earth. And that is the promise, namely, that Paul is, is pointing to here in Galatians chapter 3. He is, he is pointing to this promise of blessing that, that Abraham, your, your seed, your offspring will be a blessing to the entire nation. Ultimately, he's talking about Jesus here. God is foreshadowing that Jesus is going to come as one of your descendants through your line. I will preserve your line as this people. They will be a nation. They will go through all these things. But ultimately, ultimately, it's going to result in Jesus being born. Jesus coming to earth. God in the flesh who will save not only your physical descendants, but will save every nation on the earth. Um, we see this Genesis 12, 3, uh, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the first time that shows up. And then we, we uh, see the, the promise expounded a little bit. God makes these promises, and, and Abraham, um, he says, well, how, how can I know? How can I be sure uh, which, which I think is a common human thing to do, right? Somebody makes, makes a promise, especially when it's a really big one, and it's like, I mean, really, you know, is this, you ever have somebody uh, call on the phone, right, and they say, you've won five nights at a Marriott hotel. <laughs> it sounds like a promise, and it sounds like a scam. Thank you very much. Um, Right, we, we tend to be a little bit cautious of big promises. Abraham's a little bit cautious of big promises, and he says, God, how can I know? How can I know that this is, uh, this is what you're, you're really going to do? How can I know that this promise is secure? And remarkably, God actually answers that request in this incredible way. And, and I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at this because I think it's relevant to our discussion uh, this comes from, from Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to jump around a little bit, so you don't necessarily need to turn there. But he says, uh, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, so God replies to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half against each other. Sounds strange at the, at the onset. I'm just going to say, how will I know, God? And he says, go get all these animals. And he says, oh, okay, and he goes and he cuts him in half and sets either half on either side. This is one of those where I'm like, what is going on? It's actually very simple. This is how you would sign a contract. 
in that day. This was a common practice. Today, this would be like, you say, God, how will I know this is, this is really going to come to pass? How will I know that this promise is secure? And God says, go get a notary. Got it. I know what you're doing. You go get a notary, a little less bloody, but it does the same thing, right? Uh, we, we bring this person in, and this is how we're going to sign this deal. This is how we're going to make sure this is, this is valid. We need signatures and witnesses. And this is, you know, similarly, in that day, this was a common practice. God says, go get some animals. Cuts them in half. Spreads them uh, apart. And, and what you would do is you make an agreement with somebody, maybe a treaty. My nation will not attack your nation. Your nation will not attack my nation. This border is secure. To, to show that this is valid, we're going to have these animals cut in half. And then the, the two of them, the, these two leaders, would walk between these halves of animals. And they are saying, let it be to me and more also if I break this deal. If I break this deal, if I don't uphold this treaty, let me be cut in half. Let me be cut off. Let me be destroyed. That's a pretty serious agreement, right? And so Abraham understands, God, we're going to make a contract. I'm going to make a contract with God. I will walk between these animals, and this thing will be binding. It will be finished. It will be solid. And then here's what's incredible. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Uh, Abram is, is Abraham's name before God changes it in a couple chapters. Okay, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Stars are blacked out. Moon is blacked out. A dreadful darkness falls on Abram. And then, verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes, or passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. You see what happened here. Now, the, the, the smoking pot and the flaming torch, we don't know exactly all of the symbolism that's involved there, but essentially God shows up while he has Abraham knocked out and God passes between the pieces of the animals. Now, what is God saying in that? He's saying two things. Number one, let it be to me and more also if I don't uphold this promise. Let me be destroyed. Let me be torn in pieces. Let me be cut off if I do not keep this promise. And number two, by not having Abraham walk between the animals, he is excluded from the terms of this deal in the sense that there is nothing for Abraham to do. God is not asking him to make a covenant with God Rather, this is just God making a covenant with him. This is God saying, this is on me. This is my promise. In this way, promise is very different from law. Right? If, if, uh, if there was an example I, I heard, if, if I have an envelope of $1,000 and it's sitting here on this piano, and I say, uh, I, am, I am promising to give you $1,000, all you have to do is believe that, and it's yours, right? You believe it, you stand up, you walk over here, you take the envelope, the $1,000 is yours. That's promise. There's nothing for you to do. Now, if you disbelieve it, and you don't think my promise is valid, you can stand up and you can walk out, and you can never come back again, in which case you don't receive the $1,000, right? But all you have to do is have faith. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is trust that my promise is indeed true, that there is an envelope here with $1,000, you can stand up, come over, and take it. Now, law is very different. If, if I say, 
I will give you $1,000 if you come and cut down trees on my property. If you come and cut down the trees, then you get the $1,000. That's law, right? If you do this, then I do this. If you uphold your part of the bargain, then I uphold my part of the bargain. If you don't come out and cut down trees, you will not get $1,000. Very simple, right? And that is so much more common in our lives that that is how we like to believe God functions. If I do my part, he will do his part. This is what the Galatians were believing. If I observe the Old Testament law, then he blesses me with salvation. If I, then him. That's law, that's not promise. What is made here to Abraham is promise. Abraham, your seed will be a blessing to every nation. And that's it. Now, we, we have the other uh, figure who represents, the other Old Testament figure who represents law, and that's Moses. Um, let me see if I can find this. Um, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels, as verse 19, through angels by an intermediary, Verse 20, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. A little bit cryptic there, but essentially we have the intermediary, that's Moses. That is the figure who represents law. There is this statement here, which I'll just acknowledge has nothing to do with the rest of my message, but uh, there's this statement about angels playing a role. Honestly, no one knows what that means, uh, other than I think we can assume angels played some role in the giving of law to Moses. We, there's a couple of verses that, that uh, speak to that. In, in the, the law which Moses wrote, there's no mention of that. So it's a little bit confusing, but, but that's okay. It's not, like, that, that's not what Paul's argument hinges on, nor is it mine. So we can continue moving there, but I think it's just good to acknowledge that we don't fully know what that means, right? But, uh, but the intermediary here, which is Moses, God speaks to Moses and gives him the law. If you are not from church, if you haven't grown up in church, this may be a little bit confusing, and I just want to help clarify a little bit. And even if you have been in church for a long time, uh, maybe this has always been a vague idea to you. But, but the law refers to really a couple of things. First, and namely the, the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus, um, where are we at? Exodus uh, chapter 20, we have the, the Ten Commandments, right? God gives these as specific laws, specific rules to his people. Uh, and, and, and they're probably familiar to you. You have no other gods before me. That's number one. You do not make yourself a carved image, right? No idols. That's number two. Number three, you should not take the, the name of the, uh, whew, you should not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day, right? To work six days and rest one. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? No lying, uh, that sort of thing. And number 10, you shall not covet, right? Don't, don't covet or desire uh, your neighbor's things, right? Whether his, his property or his wife or, or any of that, right? Those are the 10 commandments. That is kind of when we say the law, that's what would come to a lot of people's mind, the 10 commandments. There's also the, the ceremonial law. There's the, uh, the sacrifice system, um, which, which in giving the sacrifice system, by the way, God is acknowledging right from the beginning, I know you can't keep my law. 
We're going to come back to that here in a minute. But, but God gives us the law, and then he says, I know you can't keep it. So when you break the law, here's what you need to do. And there is in total 613 laws which Moses wrote, which we have captured in the Old Testament, uh, some having to do with the nation of Israel and how they would function as a people, right? They were slaves for 400 years. Now they've come out of slavery. They're wandering through the wilderness. They need to set up a, govern, uh, a government, a way to govern themselves. God gives them some tools to do that. Um, that's some of the laws, and then some of them have to do with the, the sacrifice system and, and the ceremonial laws, and then we have the Ten Commandments. All of that together is the law. Okay, hopefully that's, that's helpful and kind of clarifying a little bit. And all of that is represented by this intermediary, Moses. Moses gives us this law, and what is thought sometimes is that the law is the means by which we can be saved. Keep all the laws, and God will bless you. Keep all 613 laws, and you will be with God forever in heaven. Break the laws, go to hell. Right? That's in, kind of in a nutshell what many of us have been taught, what many of us have understood, what many of us impose on the scriptures. And I want to show you through Paul's teaching here that that is not at all what's going on here. But, but that is uh, kind of this idea of, of law. Right? What, what Paul wants to point out to us, and, and let me get back to Galatians here, what Paul wants to point out to us is that the the law coming in 430 years later does not change the terms of the deal. Remember, God walked through the animals. He said, let, let me be like this. Let me be destroyed if I don't keep this promise. So 430 years later, has God changed his mind? Has he come to regret this promise? And he says, actually, let's add a few terms to this deal now. It can't be. Even in a human contract, we would not allow that, right? Even in a human contract, somebody comes and says, after the fact, I want to change terms of the deal, we would not allow that. How much more so with God? I've got to tell you a story here. Uh, I, I uh, was a financial advisor for a number of years, and, uh, and the, most bizarre, uh, the most bizarre thing I, I ever saw um, <laughs> was this, uh, a client came in, uh, she, she sat down with me and she said, my, my mother and my stepfather have just passed away in, in very close proximity to one another. There's only uh, days between them. And the way in which they passed away, uh, everything was governed by her mother's will rather than her stepfather's will. And if I'm remembering the details right, the stepfather's will would leave her a share of the inheritance, right? I, I think there, there may have been two sisters and it would have left her half. Okay, But because they died so close together, the, the terms of the will dictated that the mother's will would supersede that of the stepfather's will. Which you think, well, that's fine. Why could that possibly matter? Well, because the mother's will had some odd things in it. Specifically, that the inheritance was not to go to her daughter, but was to go to the cat. And no matter how much we looked into this and how much we, we worked our way through this, it was legally binding. She had created a will. It was legally binding. And now after her death, there's no way to change this. The inheritance went 
to the cat. I'm not even kidding. This is a real life story. And I felt so bad. I really wanted to help this lady. Uh, but then I was like, hey, uh, can I get the phone number for your cat? Because uh, that would make a really excellent client. Uh, I would love to manage that inheritance for your mom's cat. Uh, I, I don't know like how that plays out. I assume that cat is living really, really well still. I don't know how. I mean, it was like, I don't know, fifty dollars or $75,000. I don't know how a cat possibly spends that much money. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all hear those stories. You know, somebody gets a big inheritance, and then they just go into a life of drugs and, like, wreck themselves. I assume maybe that's what happened with a cat. I don't know. Uh, but even with a human agreement, once it's set, once it's signed, it's legally binding, it's not going to be changed. How much more so will God, when he sets his seal on this, when he walks through the animals, he says, this is going to be by promise, not by works. Salvation comes by promise, not by works, not by the law. Now this moves us right into part two of, of my message here, which is the, the question that Paul asks, why then the law? What's the point? If salvation comes by promise, then why bother with the law at all? And he gives us some arguments here. Number one, he, he asks the question, is the law contrary to the promises of God? And he answers quickly with, certainly not. The law, we need to understand this, the law is not contrary to the promises of God. The, the whole position of the first half of my message is ridiculous. It's not the law versus the promise. This is not some ultimate cosmic showdown, right? This is the law and the promise. They are not contrary to one another. They support one another. We don't have promise unless we have the law. The law and the promise go together. They were always intended to be together. It's not contrary. What, what the problem is, is we use the law as a tool for the wrong purpose. The law was never meant to bring salvation. It never was meant to bring salvation. And when we try to use it that way, it's like using a tool for the wrong purpose. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I tried to come up with a funny example of me using a tool the wrong way. I've used a lot of tools the wrong way. There's probably a lot of funny examples you know, the common stuff. It's like you have a pipe wrench in your hand. You need a nail driven. Why go get a hammer, right? You, but, like, this is just asking for your thumb to get smashed, uh, right? It, it, this, is, this is coming. Um, but, but we all get the idea, right, that you have a tool like a hammer. You're not going to use it to put in a light switch. It, just, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> but does that mean a, a, a hammer is useless? No, I use a hammer on all kinds of things. Hammers are fantastic. But you have to use a hammer for the purposes of a hammer. And you use a screwdriver for the purposes of a screwdriver. Um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers of all time, uh, he, he on, on this passage, he said, Will you say that because iron cannot be eaten, therefore iron is not useful? And because gold cannot be the food of man, will you therefore cast it away as worthless? Right? No, we don't throw gold away because it's not food. It has worth. Iron has purpose, but it's not everything has every function. Similarly, the law has its place and has its function. It is not contrary to the promise. 
It was not intended to bring salvation. And in the law, we have the, the sacrifice system, right? We have lambs and, and rams going and being sacrificed to atone for sin. And I, I think, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here just a little bit, uh, so, so take it with a grain of salt maybe, but, but I don't think these ever actually atoned for sin. I think that they were an act of faith it was the act of faith that granted atonement. It was the act of faith that granted salvation. And that by walking out in that faith, you sacrifice an animal, God forgives. But the animals were simply a placeholder for Jesus. From the beginning, the plan was Jesus. Even Genesis 3, at the moment sin enters and, and the fall happens and man no longer walks with God, God promises he will send Jesus, who will crush Satan, right? And it's, it's just a, it's a little hint of a promise in Genesis 3, but that is picked up and carried all throughout the scriptures. It's always been promise, it's always been faith, it's always been trust in God that grants salvation. Similarly, I would say baptism, right? Jesus tells us that when we become believers, now this is New Testament uh, sacraments that, that, we, that we carry out, when you become a Christian, you should be baptized, my, uh, my, my second daughter is, is asking me and bugging me all the time, Dad, I want to be baptized. When, the, when are they doing the next baptism? We were just camping this week, and, and she reminded me, Dad, I, I can't wait to get baptized. This is awesome. Does the baptism save her? No. Jesus' death on the cross saves her. Her faith in Jesus is what saves her. Baptism is a symbol. It's a sign. It's a reminder of what Jesus did, being buried and raising from the dead. Right? We identify with his death, burial, and resurrection when we get baptized. But it's not the thing that saves us. Communion, at the end of my message, we'll take communion together. We'll eat bread and juice, remembering Jesus' broken body and his spilled blood. Does taking communion save us? No, it reminds us of the one who saved us. These things are there to point us to Jesus. They always have been. It is not contrary but it, 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 it supports, right? The law supports the promise. Number two, I'll ask again, why then the law? He says, Paul says to us that the law is there to hold us captive. The scripture imprisons all things under sin. This is not an aspect of uh, the Bible I think we talk about maybe enough. It's not maybe the funnest thing to talk about, but the reality is the law imprisons us under sin. Right? Now, now let's be clear. It's my sinful actions that get me there. But when I look at the law, when I read through the Ten Commandments even, I, I mean, have I always honored my father and my mother? No. Listen, just teenage years never happened right uh ha, like have i have i never stolen anything have i never taken anything of any amount of value boy i, I don't know that i could say that now i, I could say I, i've never murdered right and and that's kind of where we start getting this false sense of pride and security it's like well i've, I've done the big ones right I've, I've kept the big ones but jesus comes and in in matthew chapter five he expands on the law, and I think this is helpful to look at. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, fortunately, I lucked out. I didn't have a brother. I had a sister, so I'm free on this one. Um, no, no, right? Doesn't work that way. Uh, Jesus, take, he says, you think you understood the law, but you have not understood it. It's so much more than you have understood. It is so much deeper than you have understood. The law goes way beyond just don't murder. If you've ever felt hatred, if you've ever called someone a fool or insulted someone, you've committed murder, now how confidently can we stand before the law and the judge? Probably not so much, right? And then uh, again in verse 27, Jesus expands on another of the Ten Commandments. You uh, have heard it uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The law is so much bigger. It's so much deeper and richer than we could ever understand or, or hope to. Uh, and, and the law and our knowledge of the law imprisons us under sin. The more we look at it, the more we study it, we don't find salvation there. We find imprisonment. We find captivity. We are held prisoner. The law does that for us. Right? Uh, Another story that I heard this week, or or that I read, rather, um, it's like walking through a dark cellar that has not been opened for years, and you open this, and there's no light in the cellar at all, and you're walking through, and the cellar is full of all kinds of, of horrible creatures. You walk through, and you just don't know it. The law comes in, and it's like turning on the light. It's like taking down the shutters and letting daylight flood in, and all of a sudden, you are aware of the monsters that have been lurking around you the whole time. The law makes us see how sinful we are. The law makes us see how, how uh, wicked our hearts are. That's the purpose or one of the purposes of the law. And just to make clear, verse three, or, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, so a part of last week's uh, message, um, Verse 10, uh, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is not a matter of doing more good than bad. This is not a matter of, of trying to um, avoid the big ones and maybe the small ones aren't that big of a deal. If you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. You're under a curse. If you've broken even just a single point on the law, you've broken it all. And you are liable for judgment. That's that's God's law. That's what it holds us to. And let me just tell you, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Hang with me. 
Number three, the, the law is our guardian. Uh, let, let me find this here. Uh, verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This word guardian here, I didn't fully understand as I got into this, but the, the more I studied, I, I realized that the, the, the word here used in the, in the Greek, the, the original word, it's, it's like a nanny, right? It's a, a caretaker that, that would care for a child. The law acts as our nanny. I thought that was more helpful to understand. Right, it, it, it shows us, first of all, it shows us God's heart. I, I think that the, the scriptures as, as a prison is harsh but, but real. And, and the scriptures as a nanny shows us a little more of God's heart. Right? It's, it's tender and it's loving. It's watching over us and caring for us. It shows us God's heart. Like you would teach your children, the law teaches us. It trains us. It, it shows us right from wrong so that when we reach maturity, which is faith in Christ, we would have that in us to guide us, right? You don't always want your children to just follow your rules. You want to teach them the heart behind the rules so that when they go out into adulthood and make their own decisions, they don't need to call you and say, hey, should I go watch this movie or not? Hey, should I hang out with these people or not? hey, should I do this, uh, take this job or take that job, right? You, you don't want to guide every step of your children's life. You want to teach them well, train them well, so that in maturity they can make their own decisions. Similarly, in maturity, in faith, we have the Holy Spirit guiding us. That's the more mature uh, principle. And, and Christianity is sometimes taught, well, you come by faith, and then real maturity looks like you keep all these rules real good. Right, and we have a strict law that we abide by. It's going back in, in backwards in maturity. It's like saying, "Well, I've believed in faith, and I have the Holy Spirit, but I'd rather the nanny keep good care of me." Right? It's it's moving the wrong direction. It's there as a as a guardian. It's there as a nanny. It's to help teach and train us, but it's it's not meant to be the full extent of our Christian. Life, not at all. Number four, um, the, the law, let me ask the question again, why then the law? And it is that we might be justified by faith. Or to say it another way, that you might be justified by promise. The law is there in some ways, it's bad news. Because what the law does is it shows us how holy God is, how separate God is, how great God is, and it shows us how unholy and how sinful we are. It shows this great chasm between us. And the worse that the bad news is, here's the great thing. The sweeter the good news is. When we understand who God is and we understand who we are, we look at Jesus who closes that gap and we are so grateful. If God's a little bit better than me and I'm a little bit worse than God, then Jesus only saves me a little bit. But when God is really great and I am really not, my view of Jesus is huge. My view of Jesus is, thank you, Jesus. I fall on my knees. Thank you, Lord, that you would save me because there's no way by the law that I could ever be saved. 
the deeper I get into understanding the law, the more hopeless I know my situation is. And it leaves me just grateful for Jesus. The law comes in that we may be justified by faith, that we might understand. Without the law, we, may, we might not know or realize how hopeless our state is. And like fools, we may go and stand before God at the judgment and, and say, I've done pretty well. But the law warns us against that. The law keeps us from that foolish understanding of ourselves and of God. The law shows us how deeply we need Jesus. And in that way, the law points us to salvation. It points us to the promise. It makes us so grateful that we're saved by promise and not law. God has always been after our hearts. The, the law has existed, and, and Joel chapter 2, verse 13, God says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Right? People were in this habit of tearing their garments, this big show. Oh, God, I've sinned. <laughs> Tear my clothes. Aren't you glad I'm not doing that today? Right? <laughs> Woo. Uh, rend, he, God says, rend your heart. Let your heart be broken over the, the, the broken law. Not your garments. Quit putting on this show. He says in other places, he, he doesn't want our, in fact, Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It, it almost sounds like God is diminishing his own law, which I don't think is the case, but, but he's saying I, that is just a sign of your faith. To do the burnt offerings without the faith is worthless. I don't want it. It's a stench to me. Give me your heart. That's what I'm looking for. God has always been about relationship. Old Testament, New Testament, God has always been about relationship with his people. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to be with him. That has always, always been the case. And then let me just say this as kind of a final point. Those who are free from the law are the ones who follow it best. Let me explain, right? The temptation is if, if law is not what saves us, then won't Christians just be these, these wild, licentious people that, that just go do anything that comes to mind and they just reject all of it and they go, oh, Jesus saved me so I can do anything I want. That's not the case because when we love Jesus, when we are with Jesus, when we are close to Jesus, we are far from sin. And in fact, if the law is the thing which saves you, then you read do not murder and you say that must only mean do not murder. I'm not going to stab someone with a knife. I'm not going to do that and I will be good. You are tempted to confine the law when the law is your savior. You must because otherwise there's no way to keep it. Right? You must put confines on the law. That's the only way to give yourself some self assurance that you might be saved before God. But when you notice, when you realize that you are free in Christ, when you realize that Jesus has, has died for you, that your salvation is by promise, by just believing, and not by any works of your own, then you are free to really strive after the law. If it's not my work, then I look at murder, and I can understand that it means hatred, and it means insults, and it means uh, having, having a cold heart towards someone. And I can even say, maybe it means even more than that. And I'm not paralyzed in fear that I'm not keeping it all, but I'm motivated to strive to be 
more like God, to be more after God's heart. When you are free from the law, you are best able to follow it and no longer minimize or limit it. I just, I just want to conclude. We're going to go to communion here soon, and, and I just want to encourage you. As Paul is encouraging the Galatians here, once you're freed from the, the prison of sin and law, do not put yourself back under that weight. A higher level of Christianity is not subjecting yourself to a list of rules. It's going backwards. It's putting yourself back under the nanny. It's, it's like trying to, trying to break back into Alcatraz or something, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. It, experience that freedom and live in that freedom. Live in the freedom to love the law. Live in that freedom. But do not, do not look at the law for salvation. Do not look at the law for salvation because it was never meant for that. It was never intended for that. It's not the purpose of that tool. It has many great purposes. And we can look at the Psalms and the psalmists like David and, and others say, God, I love your law. It's like a breath of fresh air to me. Why do they say that? How could you say that about the law? Because they understand their salvation is by promise. It's not by law. Then the law is glorious. It's wonderful. It's lovely. God, I love your law. We can only say that when we understand our salvation is by promise. I, I, I got to read this story because I, I think this is so cool. John Knox, uh, on his deathbed, was attacked with self-righteousness. Oh, I hope we can all have an understanding like this. He was attacked with self-righteousness. Uh, the last night of his life on earth, he slept some hours during which he uttered many deep and heavy moans. Being asked why he moaned so deeply, he replied, I have during my life sustained many assaults from Satan, but at present he has assaulted me most fearfully and put forth all his strength to make an end of me at once. The cunning serpent has labored to persuade me that I have merited heaven and eternal blessedness from the faithful discharge of my ministry. You hear what he's saying? Satan has come in his final hour to tempt him and, and say, not that you're not worthy, but the opposite. Oh, you've merited heaven. You've earned it. God owes you this because you've been such a good preacher. You've been such a good minister. And he recognizes it rightfully as an attack from Satan. How dare you make me trust in my own righteousness? And he says, but blessed be God who has enabled me to quench this fiery dart by suggesting to me such passages as these. What have you that you have not received? And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Oh, what a mature understanding of the law and of our place and of the promise. Let us never lose sight of the promise. We're going to take communion now. I just want to invite the ushers up. Remember, too, as we take communion, that, that we're earning nothing here, right? This is a reminder of the one who's earned it for us. We take the bread, and, and go ahead and, and get up, come forward, grab the cracker and the juice. Thank you. We're going to take this together as a reminder of what Jesus has done, a reminder of the promise which frees us.
the juice and the cracker and make your way back to your seat. I'm going to take this together. Jesus gives this sign to his disciples on his last night on earth. He wants us to remember every time we come together, he says, take this juice, take this bread, and remember what I'm about to do for you. So let's take the bread together and let's remember Jesus' body that was broken. And the juice, remembering his blood that was spilled, the perfect righteous one dying in the place of all the unrighteous to make us righteous. Let's worship.